2: Good morning, Here is our Wild World, and today we're going to be talking about our friends out there who are feathered and free with our special <coughs> excuse me, special guest, Julie Murad, who is the CEO of the Gabriel Foundation. Julie, also affectionately known as the Bird Brain, has been involved with Companion Parents for 35 years. The Gabriel Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation established in 1996. Good morning, Julie. It's nice to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how your organization came to be?
3: Well, our organization came to be after spending time for me personally with parrots for many, many, many years. Ever since I was eight years old, I was enchanted and uh, adored them and had lived with parrots myself for many places, but especially um, throughout the Middle East and parrots have always captivated me. And when I came back to the United States from the Middle East, I had an opportunity to add some parrots to my life. Um, I'd been given a parrot by my Kuwaiti family, and unfortunately that bird was taken from my home when I was um, in the hospital having my daughter. That's a long time ago. She's 38, almost 39 now. So parrots have been my life, at least in that regard, for that long. When I came back to the States, and it's many, many years ago now, adding parrots to my life seemed a really important thing to do. And the Gabriel Foundation is named after one extremely special bird who was in my life for really too short of a time, less than two years. And it was his life and his passing that truly inspired me to start the Gabriel Foundation, not just as a way to honor his short life, but as a way to help people who had many of the kinds of questions that we see many times on a daily basis, and for those who are curious and interested about the life of parrots in captivity, conservation, and in the wild. Wow, that's quite a story. Now, are you Kuwaiti or are you a U.S. citizen? I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born and raised in the United States. And um, I happened to be married for a Kuwaiti and lived there for many years. It was a wonderful, exciting experience. And when I think about t- obtaining my first bird there, which was a gift from my in-laws, the thing that was so interesting is that bird had originated in South America or Central America and to have that bird end up thousands of miles away, halfway around the world, in a Kuwaiti souk or a market is really the story of why I appreciate so much being involved in the opportunity to speak on this show today.
2: I can imagine you've run into a lot of um, interesting experiences, both horrific and both fabulous, like the one you had with Gabriel. I'm assuming his name was Gabriel from the Gabriel, name was Gabriel. What yes. kind of
3: a bird was he? Gabriel is a bird who actually, um, and, you know, kudos to CITES for taking place right now in Bangkok. I'm sure we're all really excited to read the news on on elephants and elephant conservation, plus some of the other plants and other creatures. Um, But Gabriel is a CITES one bird, which means that he's critically endangered in the wild. And he was a hyacinth macaw. Isn't that one of the largest um, parrots out there? Yes, in fact it is. They're giant blue Um, birds, absolutely beautiful, hyacinth blue. And in in the light, their feathers have an overcast of teal, and the underside of those feathers is black, but they're enormous. They are the largest flying macaw. And they've got big bands of yellow on either side of their beak um, that often makes them look like they're smiling, and they generally have an eye ring that's bright yellow, too.
2: Well, our listeners can go out and google um, the hyacinth macaw to see what Julie is describing. They are fabulous, fascinating birds. And um, first off, where are you
3: located? We are in Colorado. The Gabriel Foundation has been in the Denver area for the past eight, almost eight years. We're in our 18th year now. We grew up in the mountains of Colorado and we moved down to Denver about eight years ago so that we could expand our wings and expand our location, expand our our campus. We actually have two physical locations in the greater Denver area. One is a 35 and a half, almost 36 acre um, campus habitat that houses about 700 plus of our birds with huge indoor and outdoor flights and has kitchens and we welcome visitors throughout the week. Our other location is right downtown Denver, so if any of our listeners happen to be in Denver passing through, we're a great place to stop and and to see something wild and um, learn about the work that we do. We're really, really close to the Denver Art Museum, the fabulous new Colorado History Museum, and um, it's a great area for visitors. And your website is?
2: TheGabrielFoundation.org, correct?
3: G-A-B- the
2: org, And that's spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L, foundation, all one word, .org. All right, I hope our listeners will uh, visit the website and check in and see all the incredible work that we're going to talk about that Julie and the Gabriel Foundation do. Um, let's get into some more intense issues here. What are some of the most pressing challenges that you encounter in bird conservation and companion parrot education um, you are a nationally and internationally recognized human parrot behavioral consultant and tell us what that means a little bit and how how you relate this to the pressures and what you do and the challenges that you face with the birds around the world
3: well and that's an excellent question and it's a big question it really encompasses so much of who we are and what we do like many many people my foray into the world of birds um, started many, many years ago. And when I was a little girl, the only kinds of parrots that one really happened to find would be budgies, with which is the Australian sort of slang for budgerigar, which is the most popular parrot all over the world. And in the United States, we call them parakeets. Okay. But they really are parrots. And having these captive-bred little budgies where... We used to be able to go down to the Five and Dime, the Ben Franklin, um, trying to remember some of the stores that were there before Walmart took over everything, but you could be able to buy a budgie for five bucks. And um, they were one of the first birds, along with finches and canaries, that were really mass-produced in the United States to be able to get everyone the opportunity to have a bird. Prior to that, captive birds, or big, huge, what most people of our listeners would call exotic birds, were really found in maybe some big zoologic parks. Um, They were found in places that's now called Parrot Island, but formerly Parrot Jungle, where birds would be performing acts. Um, They would do tricks. People would see them, but mainly in zoos. And up until 1992 there was virtually no restriction on the importation of birds from the wild. That changed dramatically in 1992 with the Wild Bird Conservation Act um, in the United States.
2: We've covered a little of that on um, Our Wild World in previous episodes, but not in uh, detail of the birds specifically, but in coordination with other wildlife species, the mammals. So this is another huge crisis that we are facing that we're not often aware of, which is the captive wildlife crisis and trade in wildlife and wildlife parts. And when it is thought of, it's usually thought of in regard to mammalian species. Do you often find yourself in the line of fire or crossover issues in the trade of illegal wildlife? And we, how do you how do you deal with that?
3: That's um, you know that's food for thought. And because because. We do present all around the world, and we travel nationally. Um, There are many wonderful regulations in place to protect the transport of wildlife from one country to another. Unlike elephants, or cheetahs, or jaguars, or rhinos, parrots are not mammals. They can lay eggs. And oftentimes, there is a lucrative market in capturing and removing parrot eggs putting them in sort of body incubators and then smugglers um, will attach them to their bodies and travel all over the world and get them into um, get them into an incubator in some distant area hopefully to hatch them out Um, that really is destructive to the environment where the families are located but that is one way the other way is um, there is an enormous amount of smuggling that still continues to go on because most of the areas in which parrots are indigenous, where parrots can be found in the wild, are really poor areas. And the middleman um, who is often the barterer, uh, is the one that helps to he helps to supply the poachers, or the locals with income to provide for their families, yet on the other side, he's supplying the trade and he's supplying those who are putting those animals into the um, cap the exotic animal market. So once
2: again, it's um, it's that supply and demand issue.
3: Yes, um, it is, which we're
2: facing with, as you said, rhino horn and elephant ivory. Um, from where uh, in the world do most of these exotics, and not the budgies and the parakeets, but the larger birds that you're talking about that now we seem to see in pet stores
3: versus what we didn't see
2: earlier, where, did, where are they mostly
3: taken from? Well, what's really interesting, and I'll put this point out to your listeners, is that in the United States, we originally had one parrot that was indigenous to the United States. And we hunted that to extinction before 1916. And that was the most beautiful, exquisite, small parrot called the Carolina parakeet. And chances are that that bird historically migrated up through Central South America, Central America, and established wonderful, huge breeding colonies and populations in southeast United States, Florida, on up to Virginia, that area. And those birds were hunted to death because um, farmers setting up the early cotton and tobacco fields felt that those birds were harmful to their crops and they annihilated them as pests.
2: Sounds and like this, what
3: happens to a lot of our species. The passenger pigeon is another one, yes. Mm-hmm. And the other bird that was not ever really established in the United States is a bird named the thick-billed parrot, and its main population is in the Copper Canyon in Chihuahua in Mexico. And it's absolutely a phenomenal bird, and it's always been a small population of parrots because of its really specialized uh, feeding habitat. And it feeds on pinion pine nuts. And that bird would actually fly up into the Four Corners area of the United States and um, forage in those pinion pines until habitat destruction and many, many of the areas en route became so developed that it wasn't a safe place for the birds to fly anymore. So we lost those at the turn of the century, but the majority of parrots come from New World countries, which are Central America, Mexico, and South America. And then they come from Australasia, which is uh, Australia, the Indonesian archipelagos, um, those islands around there in the tropical areas, and um, Borneo, Irian uh, Jaya, many of those really fascinating countries. Um, Australia, of course, which is known as the land of parrots. And then we go to a continent that you certainly spend time in, um, Africa, and hundreds of species of parrots uh, are from Africa
2: yeah there's been um, one who is very much in the news that I'm familiar with Alex the African gray parrot who is very very smart so um, birds are long-lived species and uh, I think I've heard that they live up to 50 to sixty years similar to an elephant I'm not sure of their um, their social behaviors maybe you can tell us a little about that and then what happens when um, someone gets tired of their bird what 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 can the Gabriel Foundation do or what can you help our listeners understand about this long-lived, incredible species?
3: Well, and you're right, Ellie. They are generally considered to be extremely long-lived. We see birds um, at the Gabriel Foundation. We have parrots, um, especially some cockatoos, amazons, and macaws that have come to us in their 60s. They have had long lives, and many of these birds have lived with humans who are no longer able to care for them or someone in the family has died. The rest of the family is unable or does not want to care for the bird. So in comes a bird that's had one owner uh, for probably 50 or 60 years, generally has had a pretty poor diet because the information that we have now is not the information that was widely available then, and um, the family wants to be done with it. So they call us and ask us if we can provide safe harbor or place the bird for adoption or uh, pass it on. Um, so there is reality in the longevity of parrots. Even the little budgerigar that I talked about earlier can live up to 15 to 18 years. Cockatiels, uh, another wonderful Australian parrot, probably the second most popular bird worldwide, Um, are absolutely beautiful, and in the wild, you'll see them, like you do with the budgerigars, flock in the thousands, and watching this sight as they create almost a murmuration of birds flying is absolutely, absolutely breathtaking. I can imagine that would be a stunning sight to see. It is, and the sounds are just transporting, at least for me. So you've got little cockatiels um, that can live to be in their 30s. Um, Little lovebirds, the tiny little African bird um, that people say, oh, they're so mean, but they're really amazing little thrivers, and they're colorful, and they're beautiful, and they're intelligent and industrious. Lovebirds can live to be 18 or 20 years. And really, if we think about it, that's about as long as most people have their cat or their dog. And, in fact, many people have kids that leave home at 18 or before, that is
2: definitely a long-lived species, and I think a lot of what the Gabriel Foundation tries to help um, pet bird avian aviary owners and and bird owners and bird breeders to understand, especially um, prospective bird owners or adoptees, that taking in a bird um, who has lived with someone for a really long time or perhaps a troubled life. Um, they can run into some emotional issues. Aren't birds similar to being with a six-year-old, or the intelligence scale, and some of the problems that they can exhibit, and how we have to help them through that?
3: Well, yes, I, that's you know that's a really astute point, and oftentimes the need to compare them to the intelligence of a dolphin, or the intelligence of a primate, or a young child. Um, really, is a parallel to help people understand that. Wait a minute here, I just don't have this animal. I lock up in a cage, and I leave there, and I feed it once in a while. I remember to give it some water, and that's pretty much it. You know, once once that whole field of ethology has come around, we're really understanding the lives of animals. We know so much more now through research and through the studies like Alex and Dr. Irene Pepperberg, who. Shared her life with Alex's entire life. Um, Alex died a couple of years ago at age 34. Um, we've learned so much. We learn how birds uh, listen and hear sound. We learn how a bird replicates human language, whether it's Spanish or Japanese or Korean or or French or English and that the bird absolutely learns to process and communicate using those same words. And one of the things most listeners don't know is that parrots do not have vocal cords. They don't have a larynx. Parrots have a syrinx. And all of those sounds are made by the parrot. Well, that's amazing. Blue-
2: we're, we're going to be heading into a short break here. Okay. And if listeners would like to call in, they can call in at 866 472 and uh, you can email me uh, questions, wildeyes, at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at wildeyes.org. We would love to hear your comments, or if you have a bird and have a question, Julie is the person to answer that question. And uh, we'll be right back after the short break with more fascinating information with Julie Murad and the Gabriel Foundation. Stay tuned.
1: w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot o-r-g streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you're listening to ellie weiss and our wild world
2: well, we're back here with Julie Murad of the Gabriel Foundation, and we're talking about our uh, feathered friends out there. And the title of our episode today is "Feathered and Free." So I'm going to lead into a question. I'd say the work that Julie does in actually has a very deep crossover between the wild species and the captive species, um, and working with the various U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services and the uh humane societies and the rescue organizations um, how does that come into play with what Gabriel Foundation does
3: well oftentimes um, the Gabriel Foundation is called to assist in in a variety of cases um, whether there are legal cases involving animal cruelty uh search and seizure um, confiscation and um and information about the different kinds of species. Uh, in Colorado, we work with, uh, for example, we work with mainly uh, Cytocene and related birds. So that's parrots and related birds. We also are brought chickens and po- all other kinds of poultry, doves and quail. Um, this year, a couple of peacocks. Um, and when we're involved in a situation and one of them particularly that I'm thinking about from a couple years ago, um, it had wild um, indigenous birds in it. And um, the Gabriel Foundation is not a licensed rehabilitator for wild birds. So when the magpies and the jay came into our care, we actually had to petition um, Fish and Wildlife to be able to house those birds legally on our property during the cruelty case phase of of this particular person's um, trial and the whole thing. So once that came to be and the situation was resolved, we did turn those birds over to Fish and Wildlife, and they were put in a government facility, and unfortunately um, uh, they were euthanized, which was really unfair because they had been bonded to... Um, to humans, and that's all they knew their entire life. That's, that's quite a sticky wicket that you get involved
2: in because it is
3: such a, unlike
2: the trade in large mammals um, and the wildlife trade, that is really set up with a permitting process typically to do it well. We all know of the illegal trade. But birds seem to sneak through this um, loophole a little bit so that when you're called in to do a rescue, and let's say U.S. Fish and Wildlife is involved, then you have to sort of go through some hoops
3: sometimes just to do what's best for the bird. Yeah, it's, it's extremely true. And in many of the states in which um, uh, there's a lot of incoming uh, um, foreign traffic um, or there's a, a, a big trade route and I'm thinking about through Florida I'm thinking about from Mexico up through Texas um, even through the southern ports of California there are a lot of um, there are a lot of birds that make it through that way you know they're smuggled in and it is illegal um, to smuggle in a bird and um, if a veterinarian is in receipt of a bird that's been smuggled they need to let fish and wildlife know generally that bird will be confiscated and it'll be euthanized. Um, sometimes there's, there's a large population of birds, and we used to see this coming in from Europe. Uh, Amsterdam and uh, Brussels were some of the largest animal trafficking centers in in the world that um, brought in birds from non sites regulated countries, or birds would be poached out of one country um, imported into another, and then exported legally through that other country because they were not indigenous to that particular African country. I think often about the gray parrot, like Alex, the bird that you mentioned. Um, They're from Ghana. They're from Cameroon. They're from the area that used to be called the Congo, and yet many of those are trapped in in excruciating numbers and um, packaged up and crated and shipped to Senegal Um, and some of the other ports on on that part of Africa, and then they are legally exported, but these are countries that pay no attention whatsoever to CITES regulations.
2: Well, this is an important point that you've just talked about, and I really hope our audience and our listeners who are interested in having birds take care to understand that birds are a regulated species, especially the exotics, and that to um, if they're interested in getting a bird, to get it through a reputable reputable breeder
3: who is required to have a license and a permit. Is that correct? Well, generally, but not all. And many of the responsible, old-timey breeders that we used to see in the United States are gone. Hmm. Once the super pet stores got into the basically the big sales of parrots, it about killed the smaller breeder. Um, And that happened. And even though the same amount of species is not, um, is not being sold at those stores anymore, there still is a lot, of, a lot of buying and retailing of the smaller bird species.
2: So it's a good idea for someone who wants to get involved in it, give, being a caregiver to a long-lived species, such as an exotic parrot or even a parakeet, to do their research, to contact someone like Julie... And uh, or an organization like the Gabriel Foundation to do it right. Um, it's not like going to the well. It's similar. It could be like going to the store and buying a pet. You want to make sure it didn't come from a puppy mill. Or if you're going down to Mexico and find that sad dog and want to bring it back home, there are regulations, uh, as Julia just said. You can't just bring these species back. They're um, back and forth across international borders and sometimes even state borders. Uh, There are regulations. CITES is meeting currently in Bangkok to set um, new or enforce uh, current laws uh, 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 as so many species are facing extinction due to habitat destruction. So on the other side of this, we have the captive captive side. And captive doesn't always mean bad conditions. Your companion parrot is a captive bird, but it's also your companion. Uh, How can people make that companion bird's life as exciting and fulfilled for this long-lived species as it would be in the wild?
3: Well, and that's a really important question to ask, Ellie, and it's one that we have to consider so importantly. One of the things that happens is people get, there was a big push after after Wild Bird Conservation Act came into place. There was a really, really big push to go, okay, let's captive breed lots of parrots, Let's sell these baby parrots as animals that will automatically bond to humans. So why buy an older, imported, wild-caught parrot when you can get a hand-raised baby parrot that's going to just, to use many of the sales points, just love you and want to be with you? Well, like cats and like dogs, like kids, birds grow up. And that cuddly, defenseless, completely dependent little baby parrot would normally in real life grow up and leave home, become a part of another flock, find friends to hang out with and fly with, and would set up its own um, family nesting site or uh, cavity nest and produce. I mean, the cycle of a parrot is not an easy one in the wild. When we remove all that and we see many um, breeders raising little birds, taking them away from the parents um, pretty much as soon as they hatch, and oftentimes taking the eggs away from the parents and hatch them in little tubs and incubators, those birds never have any of the early opportunity to to get the beneficial bacteria from their parents, number one, by being fed by the parents. number two. They never, ever get to be around another parrot, and the only food that they know is the either syringe or the feeding tube that the breeder is giving them. And, yeah, the breeder is going to feed that bird up to maybe 10, 10 times around the clock in the first few weeks, and birds grow rapidly. And so it used to be that you would go into uh, a breeding facility and you would see cages and cages of birds um, pretty much set up two to a pair uh, in metal or suspended California-type cages. Um, all they would have is a nest box. There would be very little of foraging enrichment because the focus was to get them to continue to reproduce. And oftentimes when a breeder or aviculturist would take away the egg, then those birds would go and lay another egg because that's what they're programmed to do in the wild, is, is basically to perpetuate the species. So in the early 90s we saw a plethora of aviculturists step up, and birds were available everywhere, and it was like, oh my gosh, people didn't have to be worried about what they thought would be getting their nose bitten off or their hand bitten, because these were little pet baby birds that had been raised by humans to be with humans. Well, as I said earlier, they all grew up, so the entire field of behavior in regard to parrots really blossomed. And we have a lot of experience in behavior regarding parrots that we drew from the human world, the whole um, B.F. Skinner and the whole concept of applied behavior analysis. I think that so many of our listeners would understand that we know now it's really not the right thing to do, to kick the dog, to chain the dog, to whack it on the head with a newspaper, and you know, to force it to be outside, to deprive it and to do all these kinds of things that maybe in the older days didn't feel very comfortable, but we didn't have the data on why those kinds of punishing behaviors don't work. When people have a parrot and the bird basically has been reinforced to bite them and people say, well, my bird was so wonderful, it was a baby, and now it just turned mean, there's such a huge gap. And how did the bird get that way? So this field of behavior and understanding What's so important about the biology and the conservation impact is that we do have great data available to us about so many wild species of parrots and their nesting behavior, their, their reproductive behavior, at what age they, they pair bond, what they eat in the wild, the vast amounts of territory that they cover flying looking for food, and we find that basically 40 to 50% of their day is spent looking for food. Probably the next 30% of their day is looking for a safe place to to sleep and to be be together. And then there's a small part that's involved with preening and keeping their feathers beautiful and safe because as a prey animal they need to be able to get away. And parrots in the wild aren't constantly touching each other. They may help preen another bird's feathers. Um, that's a sign of one of the ways for birds to pair bond. But as us humans, we want to sit there. We want to touch. We want to feel. We want to pet them. And when we do that, and this does not, this is one of the problems that does not translate well for parrots from being wild animals that are free and flying to captive birds in our home, is because. Us humans want to touch and feel. We want the bird to be there for the what we want to do, how we want to handle it. And we often fail, really not maliciously, but really just for lack of accurate information to understand that we want maybe really incompatible what's right for the bird. And so that is oftentimes for us at the Gabriel Foundation one of the absolute key aspects of why it's so important to have people who decide to adopt, you know, the adoption option, or even if they want to acquire a baby bird from what be would be a reputable reader, to understand how that animal behaves in the wild. What does its day of survival look like? And that's something that so often we think about putting a bird in our home, and we don't look at that. This is
2: fascinating information, so we're going to take a short break. Once again, you can call in to 866-472-5787 or send us an email, and we'll be right back with Julie Murad and the Gabriel Foundation.
1: stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast all the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.
2: and Julie's been telling us about um, parrots and uh, their wild behavior and how we have to uh, engage that behavior to make them comfortable and a good companion if we decide to take them on as a quote-unquote pet or become the caregiver for this long-lived species. We've received a, a question from a gent by the name of Luke through our email, and he has a question for Julie. Um, with parrots being as intelligent as they are, What are some of the ways that we can help keep our parents in our home mentally stimulated?
3: Oh, that's a wonderful question, Luke, and thank you for asking. Um, I hope you have parrots, and I hope you have an opportunity to help those um, that you know um, be able to do this. I think what we forget about is setting up the environment for success for birds in our home. And what does that mean? It means we've got to give them something to do. They need a life. Basically, they're sitting in a cage, which is so out of date, we might as well, you know, be using the horse and buggy once again. We need to have activities. They need to look and search for food. We try and replicate what it takes for them to do that in the wild instead of just giving a dish of food that sounds really great to us but may have very little nutritional content or way too much fat. We need to hide things because if you just go to that big old feeding dish and there it is, it's like, how fun is that? It gets really boring after a while. So setting up foraging opportunities, setting up enrichment opportunities where you get to use all the really fun things, paper, paper cups, um, wrapped little pieces of paper, twigs, branches, leaves, um, so many kinds of different different species of wood to give your birds the opportunity to shred, to bite, to chew, And then a cage that certainly is large enough, hopefully your bird, to have two or three different perching areas in height to be able to turn around adequately, to lift its wings, to shake its tail, to move around, and to be able to have a really great area that when it's in its cage, it's got something to do, it's got a place to go, it's got exciting opportunities. And we can use those feeding areas to hold toys, we can use them to hold food, and we can create that. We also need to figure out that we can't have a successful relationship with our birds, for the most part, if we're going to have a strictly passive relationship. So for all of us that get up and go to work every day and we come home and we're tired and, oh gosh, see the kids or see the family, or if we don't have that, talk to the animals And they're happy to see us, but we're so tired, we maybe give them some dinner. Maybe we eat something ourselves. We sit down in front of the TV or go to our desk. We take the bird out. We sit, we hold it, and it's really, really passive. The wonderful opportunity that everyone listening has a chance to do is to learn about training behaviors. In the old days, we used to see it, and we still do, with training trick behaviors. But really, whether you want to call it a trick or you want to call it training, it really is setting up an opportunity for the human to work with the bird, to give the bird a choice to participate in the behavior, for the bird to be reinforced for doing the right behavior, whether it's a step-up or a turnaround or not going after someone's hand when they put the food in the dish, um, for the bird not flying at the person, all these kinds of things that people go, oh, my bird used to be so nice, now it's mean. But we're helping understand the world from the bird brain point of view. We want to see it from the bird's perspective and understand what are we doing that really inadvertently sets up that bird to not give us the behavior or respond the way we want. So this is a field that people, you know, we just kind of want to go to the Internet, we want to look and we want to see what's easy, we want to answer our question, we don't want to have to work, and we want to just sit there and pet and pet and pet. Well, when we do that, we are sending out the most confusing message to our bird in the world, and that is... We're telling it it's time to go forth, to set up a pair bond, to breed. But we're incapable of continuing that relationship with the bird. So what's the downside of that? That's one of the major reasons that birds end up in shelters like the Gabriel Foundation, because people's expectations aren't really commensurate with what a bird actually needs to remain happy. So you've given us a lot of
2: information that taking on a bird is a large responsibility that we need to think about the bird's needs just like we think about our dog's needs. We take it for a walk or we play with a toy. So a bird is a highly intelligent species. It needs things to do. It needs, especially if the caregiver is going to be gone all day, it needs interaction. It needs a job that employs its skill sets just like we do. We go out every day and do our thing. So we need to give the bird something to do. Is there any bird that you would not suggest
3: as being a pet or a companion? Hmm. I think you know. Well, some of that's going to be dependent on where humans live. Okay. Um, I think that that for many people, um, I think I think that really it is based on the person's living environment, you know, if you're living in a condo or with close neighbors, you may not want to have a a large cockatoo that's, you know, whose voice can carry for three miles. You may not want to have a large macaw. Um, If you're in a family with lots of small children, you may want to have a bird that's going to be safe with the kids and safe with you and one that's a little easier to watch and to be around and help to teach your children how to behave around the animal. I think that there are some species that are maybe a little easier for families to live with. It doesn't lessen their impact. It doesn't lessen their personality. They're absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful birds. Um, And I think that really figuring out the longevity of all the other things that go with a parrot, the size of the cage. The diet, the enrichment, where are you going to take it, the veterinary costs, all of those things that are a part of living with this animal, that can really help someone make a reasonable decision on what's the best kind of bird them. And that's really the terrific thing about working with um, uh, a group like the Gabriel Foundation when you, we work with adopters or you're working with another organization that does rehoming. Um, some animal shelters do adopt out birds but the majority of tremendous, the majority of animal shelters, traditional animal shelters, don't. And they don't necessarily have the support um, system in place to be able to help an adopter. And I'm sorry to interrupt.
2: We're Mm -hmm. almost out of time. Oh, how fast. I know. It goes really fast. And you've been fascinating to listen to, and we've learned so much. So once again, people, um, our listeners and our audience, if you're interested in having a bird as a companion or know of someone who has a bird who might be having problems, you can contact Julie Murad and the Gabriel Foundation at www.thegabrielfoundation.org and that's spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L. And you can uh, find out how to adopt a bird. You can find out what care your bird needs. You can, uh, Julie is an expert behaviorist, and she has contacts throughout the world with other experts in this field. So if you're having an issue with your bird that may be similar to the dog whisperer or any other pet training issues, um, sometimes it's the people who are at uh, the bottom of the problem and not necessarily the bird. And, and the Ger- Gabriel Foundation can certainly help you get to the bottom of some of these issues and provide the best care and lifestyle with the human's help to, um, it ex- help this bird express its life, have a fabulous, full, and engaged, and useful life, even though it's uh, our companion and it's not necessarily living wild and free. The Gabriel Foundation is not a pet store. It is a rescue and adoption organization and is focused on seven uh, ma- major areas of uh, education, and you can find that through the website. Once again, that's thegabrielfoundation.org. The Gabriel and uh, if you'd like to adopt a bird, you can contact the Gabriel Foundation, and they will give you all the information and then some that you need to have to care for this long-lived animal uh, and make a happy life for the two of you. So Julie, I'd love, I'd like to thank you for
3: being here today. Thank you. And I'd like to add that any of your listeners can support a bird. Yes. They can be a virtual adopter. They're that. And we would love that. Mood. And we also work and support many, many conservation programs throughout the world in regard to parrots. And if someone truly is interested in doing that and making a difference for birds in the wild, we would be happy to provide them. Great resource information where projects like you're working with um, Wild Eyes can help to support and benefit the birds. Well, and I have to thank you that on some of your trips on your blogs, you've posted about some of the most beautiful wild parrots. And and for those folks that are interested and inspired to go to Africa by your show, encourage them to look up, check out the trees, and always. see what else is there.
2: Always. And on that note, we end our wild world with asking our listeners to step outside, enjoy your wild world, and as Julie just said, look up, look out, and if you don't like what you see, then help make a difference, and you can make a difference to the birds of the world and donate to the Gabriel Foundation at thegabrielfoundation.org. Thank you so much, Julie, for being a part of our show today, and thank you everyone out there for listening, and have a good week.